attention to our text, 1 Peter 3. And preschoolers who are in children's church can be dismissed at this time through the back door of the sanctuary. Oh, wait a minute. Sermon notes. 1 Peter 3, verse 7, as preschoolers are making their way out of the room. I mentioned last week that uh, when I I originally mapped out this series for 1 Peter, you know, I try to have an idea of what I'm covering each week so we have it spaced out the way it needs to be. And uh, I originally had, I don't know what I was thinking, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 3 as one sermon. If you were here last week, or maybe really this is more if you were not here last week, verses 1 through 6 were about the wife. And then verse 7 this week is about the husband. So, I, you know, I tried to wrench and push and shove and cram into one sermon, and th- there was just no way to do it. So I did the passage about the wife last week and want to look at the husband this week. I'm glad I did because uh, I've actually read this quote before, but I came back across this. Um, this was in an article written several years ago, and this lady wrote, I once heard a Christian minister spend an hour talking on the biblical role of husbands and wives. <clears throat> he spent 59 minutes discussing the woman's need to submit and obey, and one minute summing up the husband's role. It was his grand finale. Men, you must love your wives as Christ loves the church. What does that mean? Dramatic pause. It means you must be willing to die for her. He sat down, and colorful images raced through my mind of my husband leaping in front of an oncoming bull or offering himself to cannibals in my stead. And she reflects on that, and she, it, she concludes by saying, most women do not want their men to die for them. They want their men to live for them. And that, that gets at what Peter is saying just in, in this one verse. Now, I know, again, <clears throat> if you weren't here last week, you can be thinking, okay, so the wife it gets pounded with six verses and the husband. But there's, there's quite a bit here. And the context of this, if you have not been here, or if you have and you need a reminder, is that this is a larger section where Peter is developing a thought, and it's this, that if the gospel... If the good news of Jesus Christ has really gotten in your bones, then you should live in such a way that 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 is visible to a watching world. And he's writing to people in what we call Turkey or Asia Minor. And so it's a wildly Gentile world who, who, who don't know the Bible stories and who do not follow Jesus Christ. He's saying this, you must live in such a way that on the one hand you are distinct. You don't believe and live as the Gentiles do. You live distinctly. However, you must live in such a way that even they could look at it and even if initially they are opposed to Jesus, they can still concede that your way of life is noble. It's attractive. Uh, it's, It's alluring. And we talked last week about, all right, what if the lost person that you're relating to is your husband? What what if you have become a believer and you're a Christian wife and you have an unbelieving husband? Well, now in verse 7, the tables turn. What if you are a believing man 
and your wife doesn't know the Lord? Or what if you're a believing man and your wife does believe in the Lord? What does it look like to live out the gospel realities to the person who watches you the most closely? To the person who knows you best and will see the most of your faults? 1 Peter 3, verse 7. Tying it to the earlier section, he says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are sheep and we need food. And you are the great shepherd of your people. Lord Jesus, you are the great shepherd of your sheep. Your sheep know your voice. And we want your voice. Be we married or single or male or female, we need food from your hand. We need the shepherd's voice. And so we pray for that, and we ask this in His name. Amen. I became a Christian in high school. I think it was fall of my 10th grade year. I didn't have a dramatic beginning to it. It just, I sort of looked up at some point and realized what had happened. And I remember uh, I, I became more involved in my, my church's youth group at that point, high school youth group. <clears throat> had a great youth group director, and there was a man who lived maybe a, a county over in another town that our youth director had gotten to know, and, and a very unusual guy, probably not a, a ton of formal theological education, but this guy uh, was just a voracious reader, voracious student of the Word, and so he would bring him in occasionally to teach us, and, and I was kind of wowed by this guy because he wasn't a minister, he had, he had another vocation, another job. But he would teach our youth group, and it was just so weighty and substantive, the things that he said. I, st- I still remember particular things he said, you know, 25 years later. <clears throat> well, I remember that a few years after first meeting him and, and starting to get to know him, a friend of mine and I drove over one day to his house just to visit with him, and we had both benefited from this man. And we were at his house, and he was, he was talking about a discussion he had had with a peer, And he said that his peer asked him the question, do you consult your wife when you make family decisions? And he said, no. Um, I make the decision and I pray that God give her grace to accept it. And, okay, I, I, I was still a pretty young Christian. I'm single. But there was the feeling that, hmm, okay. So I just kind of tucked that away. The next time I was at his house, and again, keep in mind, this man was a voracious reader. He had read some of the most, the richest uh, Christian literature of the last three or four hundred years that exists and could talk about it. We were sitting in his living room, probably talking about that kind of stuff, and his wife came walking through, and she was carrying a romance novel. And when I say romance novel, don't think Jane Austen. I mean like airport bookstore 
romance novel. Like the kind, if you go into a used bookstore, there's 80,000 of them on, on one wall. That kind of deal. Now, again, I, you know, single guy, plenty, plenty, plenty that I don't know about this whole deal. But, you know, that makes you think. That makes you think. Why did she feel the need to read that with a guy that on the one hand, doctrinally, has so much richness to offer, but what was going on relationally? And I, I, every husband could tell their stories about how they've dropped the ball. Every Christian husband will never lack for material about all the ways that we have not lived as if the gospel was actually true and real and more than we could ever need. But that's what we're looking at. Um, th- there was a Christian pastor of the, uh, oh, 150, 200 years ago, made a great statement. He said, the gospel makes husbands better husbands, wives better wives, parents better parents, Servants, better servants. In a word, I would not give a farthing for that man's religion whose cat and dog are not the better for it. And that dog part's going to be important later in the sermon, so keep that, keep that in mind. Um, if the gospel grabs a husband's heart, how should it affect the wife? How would the wife feel the benefit of that? I want to look at a couple of things here. First off, because I feel like we need to answer this on the front end. What does it mean that the wife is the weaker vessel? I think it would be unfair not to address that question on the front end. What does it mean that the wife is the weaker vessel? And then second, then what does that mean for the husband? Okay, first off, what does it mean that the wife is the weaker vessel? Pretty much in the history of Christian interpretation, there's been a lot of consensus about this, so I don't feel like I'm going out on a limb on this. But, I mean, let's just whittle it down. I mean, let's whittle it down, not only biblically, but in our own experience. Is it intellectual weakness? It cannot be that. It cannot be that. There are too many brilliant women in general and wives in particular. The be- Ironically, the best commentary that I have found and interacted with on the book of First Peter, like academic biblical commentary, is written by a married woman. It's the best one i found at an academic level. Of course it's not intellectually. Um, it's not emotionally. And I think it's important to say that one because sometimes women in general are just sort of pegged as, well, they're just more emotional, and that's stated as if it's a weakness. A- have you ever seen the numbers about, on the average, when a spouse loses a spouse, how long uh, widows survive after losing a husband versus how long widowers survive after losing their wife. You may have experienced this in your own family. My farm background grandmother that I lost last year, she lost her husband, wept, cried bitter tears, and then lived almost 30 more years. It's not emotional weakness. The consensus overall has been that it's talking about physical is talking about physically. Now, honestly, if we picked out the strongest woman in the sanctuary and pitted her against the weakest man in the sanctuary, she would probably clean his clock. I mean, if it was just a one-on-one, 
that kind of dynamic. But if you said like, all right, 50 women versus 50 men, it could, you know, get dicey. Okay, so, so why, why is Peter bringing this up? Think about it, because this is, this is relevant in a Greco-Roman world that he's writing in, and it's extremely relevant for us too. He's saying this, if you live in a culture that overall, painting with broad brush strokes, that is prone to favor the man over the woman, and then on top of that, if you as the husband are physically stronger than your wife, now we made a big deal out of this last week, These texts are not about all men to all women or all husbands to all wives or all wives to all husbands. This is talking about that husband with that wife, that couple, okay? If he lives in a situation where his cultural context, the man is favored over the woman, and then in his own marriage, he is physically stronger than the wife, then he is positioned to do something bad. And the bad thing is this, is to, whatever he's saying, is to regard her as an inferior. And Peter, not only from growing up Jewish and knowing the Scriptures, but from spending three years with the Lord Jesus Christ day in and day out, he knew the Scriptures. How does the Bible begin? I mean, this is in chapter one of the whole thing. The creation of both male and female, and the Scriptures go out of their way to state, equally bearing the image of God. What what other religious Scriptures read that way? The man and the woman, equally bearers of God's image, equally entrusted with dominion over the entire creation, both male and and female. And then in the next chapter, Genesis 2, how is the marriage depicted? This is very important. The language that God uses is He says He makes Eve to be a suitable help or helper to Adam. Now, in the King James, it says a help meet, meet as in suitable or one that fits. But that has morphed into help mate. He did not make Eve to be a helpmate. That Hebrew word for help is one that God uses about Himself as what He is to Israel. He is Israel's help, the same Hebrew term. And when He presents Eve to Adam as His help, He says that they are now what? One flesh. It's so tied together that one of the other apostles, Paul, he says in Ephesians chapter 5, look, husbands... Let me give you a whole new kind of motivation to love your wife. He who loves his wife, what does he say? He loves himself. This is not just the individual that you happen to live with and that maybe y'all are going to have devotions together and go to church together and try to have this nice kind of American life. You are now one flesh to the point where loving her is actually to love oneself as a husband. And you get an echo of that in verse 7, because what does Peter say? Failure to listen to what he's saying. Failure to model the gospel to one's wife. How, how will it affect the husband? It can actually hinder his prayers. Does that mean God is punishing him? 
No. Not if you mean punish the way we talk about a legal court punishing, the law punishing. If you're in Christ, all that went on Jesus. But God is a Father who loves His children enough to discipline them. That discipline is not a veiled attack. It's not retaliation. It is His love to beautify us. But He cares about the husband enough and He cares about the wife enough that if the husband will not model the gospel in real brass tacks life in the home and out of the home, his prayers will be hindered to the point where he will feel it. That's amazing. That's a lot of love from God for the husband, and that's a lot of love from God for that wife. Because that's who God is. Well, okay, so what does it mean for the husband? Two big things that seem to be underscored here. One is that the husband live with his wife and understand his wife and show honor to his wife. Live with her in such a way that you understand your wife and you show honor to your wife. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I just, in passing, want to say this. Let's not play down the significance of saying that you live with her. Even if you hang your hat and your clothes and your stuff in the same house, there is a work level at which it's almost a fiction that you actually live with each other anymore. And pastors are supposed to ask you questions like, if you're thinking right now, well, you know what, that's the demands of my work. There is no other option. I think it's incumbent on us, it's incumbent on me preaching from God's Word to ask you the question, all right, so then when you get this income, what are you going to be left with? Are are you going to save the work and kill the marriage? We're to live together. And not just symbolically, but like actually share life with understanding and with honor. Now, what does it mean for the husband to live understandingly with the wife? I don't know one husband who would say this out loud, but let me let you into the skull of a lot of husbands. Just between you and me, okay? Do not report me to the Husband Society of America for telling you these things. Is Even though it's probably not said, it may not even be conscience, what a husband can do is to think, you know, I'm a person. I have needs. She's a person. She has needs. I know how to understand her needs. It's by understanding my needs. Because I'm a person too. If I understand my own needs, I must understand her own needs. All right. Bad idea. And in anything that I'm about to say, I'm not trying to make all women out to all be one way any more than all men are all one way. But to live with a wife, understandingly means to become a Ph.D. student of how she is different and how she is different in particular and what love and service in that context means. That we could be here... I mean, this is what, like, marriage conferences talk about. But let's just throw out a few. Here, like, here's some classics. I don't know the exact numbers. I've heard different figures, but people will... Let's just ballpark it. People will say that... Most men need just relationally something like, I don't know, 10,000 words a day. 
and the woman might need forty or fifty thousand a day as just communicative people. The, okay, now the scenario I'm describing doesn't describe everyone here, but l- let's say it's a household where he's the breadwinner and she's a stay-at-home mom. Let's just say it's that scenario. He goes, he's doing stuff with coworkers, he's on the phone, blah blah blah. He expends his words. She's home with a child. I know that's not everybody here, but let's just do it for argument's sake. He comes home. She has this pent-up reservoir of unused talking and communication at an adult level. He's expended his just perfect storm. This is a perfect storm. And I I told a couple this. I was doing premarital counseling last weekend, and I told them what I'm about to tell you, and that is that I, I always thought, I'll never be one of those husbands who, when they come home from work at the end of the day, just wants to flop down and watch TV and not talk to anybody because she'll be so awesome, which she is, and I'll be so awesome, which I'm not, that it'll just run itself. And they'll be, And I'm telling you that when I pull up in that driveway and I turn that doorknob... Being left alone would be like the nectar of the gods. (laughs) And it is at that moment that we have to ask, do you understand your wife? Do you understand her? Are you going to live with her as just kind of partners with tasks and the same children? Or understand her? Uh, when a wife verbalizes, when she verbally processes a struggle or a problem with a husband, what is the classic mistake? I mean, this is just, this is one of the classics, is that he says, all right, we've got a problem. Clearly, we need a flow chart. We need a flow chart and a strategy and a fix and an answer and so I'm going to take this data that you've given me and we're going to come up with a flow chart to answer your question. And guess what? She doesn't want that. Usually. She wants you to listen and to understand. And that's going to take a whole batch of the fruit of the Spirit like patience and self-control, but either that's real or it's not. What about just the cues a husband sends about her appearance, her body, or her insecurities about her body, or her skin? Is the husband going to come back with, look, you just need to be secure with your body. I'm secure with my body. She may be thinking, uh, yeah. Tone. Tone can be so loud that it overrides the actual words. Um, her need for other women. Are you husband so insecure, so needy, that the thought of her 
Uh, using time to be on the phone with a friend. I know any good thing could be done too much. That's another discussion. But the need for her to talk to old friends, the need for her to connect face-to-face communication with women friends in town, which I hope she has, that it's different generally than how men do relationships. Generally, men move toward independence. Generally, women move toward interdependence. But to love is to understand, to do the math. There's lots more. The other thing is to honor his wife. Now, when you hear that term, honor the wife, it can sort of sound like, man, yay for marriage, you know? And uh, yay for wives. And Mother's Day, count me in. Flowers, candy, whole nine yards, we're going out to eat somewhere nice. Valentine, it's just kind of like, here's this institution, and I'm going, I'm all about it, like it, love it. The word honor that's used there is used in chapter 2 when Peter's quoting from the Old Testament, and, it, and he's quoting an adjective that's applied to what Jesus Christ is to God and the church, that He's precious. That's what it means. If you want to know what a writer means by a term, look at how that writer used the term elsewhere. That's how he just used that term. And he says, show honor. Communicate preciousness to the wife. How do you do that? There's no way to be exhaustive about this. I'm, I'm, I'm a see-do on the surface of application, Okay. Two things, two things that came to mind. One, I just the more I read about this, the more I thought about my own life, what just kept coming back and back and back and back is words. Words. To honor your wife, a huge component is words. Both about and to. One of the most famous passages in the Bible, maybe the most famous passage just about wives, is at the end of the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 31. And there's this amazing, intimidating description of this, of this godly wife, this wonderful wife. But there's only one person in that text who talks, who's quoted, and it's the husband. And it just shows you what this woman's life is. I mean, talk about not being intellectually weak. Talk about not being uh, emotionally or socially weak. She's investing. She's leading. She's omnicompetent almost. That's why she's intimidating. But you get to the end of it, and the husband says, there's lots of women with excellence. There's lots of great women, but you top them all. I mean, if we're going to do this understanding of the wife, if we're going to do this diagnostic about how is my wife different than me, what's the angle on that going to be? Well, let me tell you one thing I've learned about my wife, and to frame it in such a way that she's dumb and you're smart, that she's weak and you're strong, that you get it and she doesn't. To honor in how we speak about and to honor in how we speak to I don't want to make any moment of talking more important than any other, but husbands, whether it's 
because one of you is a breadwinner or both of you are breadwinners or your work requires travel or whatever your life circumstances are, when you have a period of absence between you and your wife and you come back together and she asks you about your life and your experiences, your day, your week, what do you say? Love is words. It would not be too much to say that wordlessness to her feels like sexlessness to you. And I am not being humorous. Can you apologize? Those are very important words. Can we as husbands... I mean, let's stomp on the ground the fake apologies of, I'm sorry that you feel that way. Why not just put an obscene gesture in our wife's face at that point? This veiled accusation that you're dumb to feel that way in light of these facts. I'm sorry you feel that way. Or to say, I need to tell you that I'm wrong and I sinned and I'm sorry. And do not let it die the thousand cuts of explanation. Let the apology live and stop while you're ahead. Words. And the other one, this is the best word I could come up with, is to absorb. And that's a different thought than just helping your wife. I'm going to help in the kitchen. I'm going to help, uh, I'm going to help around the house. I'm going to fold clothes. I'm going to run errands. I'm going to help her in these things. that. She... One of the best statements I ever heard about leadership was this. A great leader absorbs more pain than he inflicts. That's hard. To not just be a helper so you can kind of pat yourself on the back that I wash the dishes every night. Like, you know, I'm just, I'm just like a green beret of husbandry. <laughs> but, but to watch, but there are going to be times where as she walks out the door to go to her job or to go to schooling or she is at home with just regular things that she has to do. There'll be some times in her face that you can see that she's fine, and there will be some times in her face that you can see that this is draining the life out of me. Now, husbands can't be Jesus. Only Jesus can be Jesus, and that's where we're headed. But to, to model to her what he's like, to step in and absorb some of the hurt of living in a fallen world, as her best friend. The main calling, yes, theologically, to glorify God, but the main, humanly speaking, the main objective in marriage is to be best friends. Well, where do I get the resources for this? The gospel. I mean, you think about it. We'll see. Who, who has understood me? Who is intimately acquainted with all my ways? Who has shown me honor when there was every reason not to honor me? You know, I was thinking about one way to think about honoring a spouse is to say, we're not going to be defined by the number of our fights. But the person who has said that more than anybody is the Lord Jesus Christ with His bride. That we will not be defined by all your sin, 
We will be defined by love. To have the Lord Jesus Christ is to have the ultimate, ultimate demonstration of someone who has understood you fully and he sees through all the surface deceptions, all the spin. He sees who we actually are and he shows us honor. Because of merit, no. Because of grace, absolutely. Undeserved, unearned favor as the bridegroom to his bride. Now, if you're a husband, but this applies to everybody, but I, I am applying more to the, to the husbands here. If you're a husband and you're thinking, crud, I, I'm overwhelmed right now. Let me tell you what happened uh, at the Haybig house last night. Our dog, Jesse, got out. And I made an... I actually got out yesterday afternoon. Cold, wet, gets colder, gets wetter. And I told my family, I'm making an executive decision that when Jesse runs off, that she is not to be referred to as Jesse anymore. At that point, she is to be referred to as evil. (laughs) Because that is what she has become. Our dog can be the sweetest thing when she's at home, but if she gets out, it's not just getting out. It's like she has jumped on a Harley with chaps on and raises Cain all through the neighborhood, riles up other dogs to sin. Sin. And I came in last night after the third or fourth time of walking up and down the street and yelling. I mean, she's just... At that point, she's not Jesse, so no wonder she's not responding. She's evil, and I'm not saying evil. I'm saying Jesse, so she's not coming. And I came back in the house... And I looked at Dana, and I, I, I mean, I have such violent thoughts in my heart. I'm thinking, do we hire some kind of pet catcher? Do we hire an assassin? Do, what, what do we do? Because, and uh, I finally looked at Dana and said, this just came out. God looking at us. I mean, I got so furious, so fast. And of all things, this stupid dog that we adore, pulling this out of me, and I thought, God watches us just raise Cain with family and workplaces and friends and enemies, the people we neglect, the apathy about him in general. Just raise Cain on his earth to say the wrong things with the air that he put in our lungs, and he is slow to anger. And what really came to mind, again, from this dog, is what King David said when he had blown it. And let me tell you, David was a man after God's own heart, but he was not a good husband. And he was not a good parent. And he says in Psalm 32, this is him almost like throwing his arm around you as the psalmist saying, let me give you a little advice. He says, don't be like the horse or the mule that has to have a bit or a bridle or it can't be curbed. It won't come near you. And what's he saying? Don't 
regard God or live before God as if the only way for Him to be close to you is to grab you by the nape of the neck and drag you over. Go to Him. See, what made Jesse's craziness last night insane is that we rescued her. We rescued her from the pound. We brought her in. We loved her. We bathed her. We dote on her. We feed her. It's insane that she's running up and down the street. Yeah, it's insane. Our sin is insane. It doesn't make a bit of sense. And husbands, when Jesus Christ has been the bridegroom that He's been, and then we reflect something entirely different to our wives, it's insane. And you know what the answer is? It's the gospel again. Don't be like the horse or the mule. Don't be like evil Jesse. Just go to him. He sees it all. He knows it all. He is slow to anger. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Savior of sinners. He's the Savior of bad husbands. And He will understand you. And you will receive an honor that we don't deserve. And it will give you the resources to reflect to the people around you, mostly to your best friend. Let's pray. Have mercy on us, Father, as needy sinners. Have mercy on us, married or single, male or female. Have mercy on us, husbands, who have not reflected the great husband. We pray that we would not need coercion, dragging, even discipline to stay near you. We pray that we would go to you, even if it's for the very first time right now, to go to you, Lord Jesus, and say, have mercy upon me and receive it. We ask this in your name. Amen.